Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The bodies of Saul's grandson was left hanging on a tree. And we see that Rispa stood by watching the decay take place, fighting off the birds and chasing away the animals. It's hard for us to even imagine this, but for about five months, from the beginning of the harvest until the rainy season, Day and night, she kept vigil over her son's remains. You know what? That's easy to read, but the reality of what that woman did is astounding. I don't want to get too graphic here right before lunch, but can you even begin to imagine the smell of the rotting bodies and the horror of watching the slow decay of the ones that you love? I don't even want to visualize this. As I told you before, I have a very weak stomach for such things. This is why I can never be a good hunter. Even if I did manage to kill something, which is highly unlikely, I am positive I can never de-gut it or whatever the proper hunting term is. In fact, I remember as a boy, my brother was cutting open a deer that he had killed. I remember I took one look at that and thought, nope, hunting is not for me. And so I went back to playing Nerf football and being one of the great athletes of the 20th century, I was great at. All I'm saying is, if I ever get lost in the woods, once I run out of protein bars, all I'm going to do is find a nice tree to sit under and wait for death's sweet embrace. All that to say, in this sort of thing, Rispa was a bigger man than me, even though she wasn't a man. You know what I mean. Anyway, back to our text. You're thinking, yes, please. The text would be nice. The name Rispa means live coal. That's interesting to me because she was broken beyond words that her beloved sons were hanging on a tree. So she she camped out on a rock to keep the scavengers away, and she didn't rest until the harvest came. And like that, if God has touched our lives with the coals of the altar of sacrifice, we also will be beyond broken at the thought of his beloved son hanging on a tree. And like Rizba, as we camp on another rock, the rock of ages, may we also not rest until God gives us not the physical rain, but the rains of revival. We see in verse 11 that when David heard about this, He ordered the bodies to be taken down and the bones taken along with Saul's and Jonathan's to be properly buried. As we reflect on this intensely disturbing story, I want to suggest we resist the urge to resolve all of these problems in a neat manner. I don't believe that can be done. Nor does the story invite us to approve or condemn the actions that may seem the most perplexing to us. 
Very often it is the horror of human suffering and so much of it that is given as a reason why a thoughtful person doesn't believe in God. An impossible contradiction is felt between an all-powerful God who is asserted to be all good and the unbearable things that seem to happen under his supposed eye. A more realistic answer has to face uncomfortable truths. And one of them is the righteous wrath of God. We would all like God to be comfortable, but he is not. He is good, but his goodness is not determined by what we find cozy. What then are we to make of this disturbing portion of Scripture? We do know that all of this in some way was a consequence of Saul's sin. We may not understand all the connections, and it is complicated. But God has not so arranged the world that the only person who suffers when someone sins is the sinner. Others get hurt also. Perhaps we wish it were otherwise, but it is not. This is a reality we live with every day. Indeed, it is difficult to think of a sin that does not in some way hurt someone else. Of course, we are all sinners, and so none of us have the right to complain that it is unjust for us to suffer because of the sins of someone else. What about those who suffer because of our sins? The bitterest trials of life are often come through the wrongdoing of other people. Rizpah had nothing to do with Saul's sin, and yet she had to bear some of the horrible consequences. Here, too, we see how Christ has suffered for the sins of others. There was no sin in him, yet he was treated as a sinner because he became identified with us. Now, why? Because, like Rizpah, love bound him to us. One man put it like this, and I can certainly say it no better. Concerning Jesus, he wrote, How he drove back the vultures of sin and the demons of darkness. How he hung on the cross in the full blaze of a broken law that he might take away the sins of the world. How he has waited since, like Rizpah, at the door of the heart to give life and peace and to let the rain of his mercy drop on us out of heaven. For that sign of penitence and love, he waits through the long years, as Rizpah did through days of furnace heat and nights of intense cold, for the sign of the coming rain of heaven. Now in this, we also hear an echo of the gospel. Romans 5, 6 describes it this way. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the ministry of reconciliation. What does that passage teach us this morning? 
Jesus is the king who is able to save us from the wrath of God. He was fully and effectively the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. The greatest kingdom, the greatest problem for the kingdom of David is no longer a problem for the kingdom of the greater son of David, Jesus. And so we should not take lightly the cost at which we have been saved from God's wrath. The horror of the death of Jesus on the cross is beyond description. The consequences are unfathomable. We are saved from the wrath of God. The episode concludes in verse 14 with a simple but vital note. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. The rains came and the famine was over. Verse 15, please. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall no more go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. At this point in his life, David is an older man. And we are told at the end of verse 15 that he just grew tired. This is just life. As you get older, you run out of energy more quickly. Isn't it weird that when you were a kid, going to bed was like a punishment? But there comes a day when you reach an age where going to bed is like the highlight of the day. I mean, you want to dance through the house giving people high fives. But please take note, even at the end of his life, David was still fighting giants. Make no mistake, my beloved, the Christian walk does not necessarily get easier. There are giants all the way to the end. Our spiritual warfare doesn't end when we face temptations and even have victory over those temptations. Even when you are living for the Lord and you think all that's left is the rapture and eating Rocky Road in heaven. But it's not like that, is it? We will fight giants until the day that we die. And so David is once again facing yet another giant. His name was Ishbi Banab. I doubt anyone made fun of him in the first grade. He was probably already seven feet tall and shaving. But here's David fighting a guy who carried a spear weighing 30 pounds. This guy was incredibly powerful. To give you an idea, a college shot put weighed 16 pounds. Therefore, I can't fathom throwing a 30-pound spear. I mean, for me to throw it at the enemy, they would have to be really close, like maybe a foot away, which I guess would really be more of a stabbing than a throwing, but enough about my wussiness. So picture the scene. David is facing the Philistines and probably thinking, haven't I seen you somewhere before? And these constant, ongoing battles against these mammoth people, combined with the struggles of life, are beginning to take their toll. David is simply worn out. 
Now, this is a serious danger zone for the people of God. When we are facing an enemy that we thought we had already beaten, and to be quite honest about it, we are sick of having to fight it again. And we are now worn out and just plain tired. Ever been there? We find ourselves in battles against sickness, oppression, or some similar struggle. We seek God's deliverance, and to some degree or in some manner, we do experience it. Maybe a healing, maybe a breakthrough, maybe some kind of newfound freedom is now in our lives. It can happen in any number of ways. Maybe through prayer or a word of encouragement from a friend. But somehow, through God's grace, you are able to find five smooth stones and slay that giant that is in your life. But then, maybe a few weeks down the road, maybe even years later, the old symptoms begin to show themselves once again. In fact, not only are the old symptoms back, they are back with a vengeance, depression, discouragement, physical discomfort, spiritual dryness, emotional fatigue. And at that point, it seems like all the progress we have made in life is gone, and we are right back to where we started. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced these kinds of negative setbacks, these deja vu-like turns in your life? If so, I encourage you that even if you are doing your best to walk in the Spirit, don't be alarmed when you may be sometimes tempted with things you think you defeated 10 years ago. Case in point, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he defeated Satan with the Word of God, and then Satan had to leave. But then the scripture adds this troubling little phrase. It says that Satan departed until an opportune time. In other words, he would bide his time until the right opportunity came along. It's the same with us. Always remember you have an enemy who will fight you to the very end. In the words of a mighty fortress, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And this is what happens. The next time we see that enemy again, the next time we face that battle again, the next time we come face to face with a challenge we thought we had already defeated in our life. The second time around, the third time around, the fourth time around. And each time we have lost a little more of the anticipation of power and faith and victory that we had grasped in our lives. We start saying things like, oh, not again, or why even bother anymore? Or you know what? I've tried this before. I'm ready to give up. I just can't win. But we can. How do I know? Because the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, promises us that we have all we need to be victorious in this life. Listen to this promise, 2 Peter 1-2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and excellence. For by these, speaking of the promises, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What is he saying? We have been given, if you are a Christian, everything we need by his divine power pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us into this Christian life. The only thing left for us is to apprehend it and then apply it. This is why we all daily need to bathe ourselves in the word and prayer and as often as we can, good Christian fellowship. Every duty of the Christian demands this constant effort. We must pray, but how? Without ceasing. Rejoice, but when? Always. Give thanks for what? In everything. Simply put, we must hold our shield of faith and helmet of hope until the very end. Verse 18, please. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Shibakai or Sabachi or whatever you want to call him. The Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. And there was war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanin, the son of J.R. Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, these remember, this is not chronological. These four conflicts probably took place much earlier in David's reign, probably after he made Jerusalem his capital and the Philistines opposed his rise to power. But all four battles involved descendants of the giants from Philistia, one of whom was a brother of Goliath. Please notice in verse 18 that word, it's a circleable word, again. As we've already been reminded, there were giant struggles at the end of David's life. If nothing else, I want us to understand this morning that the Christian life does not necessarily get easier the closer that we get to home. There are giants all the way to the pearly gates. Why? Because this world is not our home. And we need the battles to keep us sharp in the kingdom. It's been well said that the path of least resistance makes both men and rivers crooked. In verse 19, we see that J.R. Oregim, at least that's how I'm going to pronounce it. You pronounce it the way you want to. Both of us will probably be wrong. Anyway, he killed a giant whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Does anyone in here know how big a weaver's beam is? Me neither, but I bet it's pretty big. The last battle took place in Gath, in the enemy's territory, and David's nephew Jonathan killed the giant who had, like Goliath, defied Israel and Israel's God. 
Notice now, though, that the other men of the army are now defeating the giants of the enemy. David was the first one to win a battle against a giant, but now others are following David's example. When as a youth David killed Goliath, he certainly gave the men of Israel a good example to follow of what it means to trust God for victory. What I want us to get from that is it's good to know how to kill giants yourself, but be sure to help others kill the giants in their life also. But talk about having to face the same enemy, the same battle of life, over and over and over again. And if you follow the genealogies of these Philistines in Scripture, you will discover that many of them, if not all these Philistine giants David, that are attacking David are related to Goliath. In fact, three of them are believed to be Goliath's own children, and one of them is his brother. These thugs David is facing down are relatives of Goliath. They are the same nationality, same gigantic size. They probably looked like Goliath. They probably smelled like Goliath. They probably behaved like Goliath. They were probably just as scary as Goliath. And it would have been easy for David's mind to play tricks on him and tell him that he is fighting the same battle that he has fought before. But he is not. This is a different time, a different day, and a different enemy. It may have looked like the same battle, but it was not. And this is why it is important to differentiate between the battles. It's because of a trick that Satan will attempt to play on us. And it plays right into a couple of things I want us to remember. Firstly, just because it looks like the same battle from the past, don't assume that you were never really victorious the last time. You see, these two logically flow from one another. If Satan can convince us this is the same old battle, well, what does that mean? It means we never won in the first place, right? So any victory we previously experienced in our life, if Satan can convince us we are fighting the same exact battle, he robs us of that initial victory, that freedom, that work that God did do in our lives. But in our spiritual lives, in these battles we face, we can allow Satan to rob us of victories by bringing along a similar battle and convincing us that we have never, ever won before. And therefore, we have no reason to believe that we will never ultimately win. This is so important. And now secondly, just because it looks like the same battle from the past, don't assume that complete victory is not possible. As I look out over our church family, I sometimes hear language and read Facebook posts that suggest we have given up in various areas of our lives. Complete victory doesn't even seem like a viable option to some of us. I mean, be honest with yourself. Can you find a place of struggle that if you were really transparent with yourself, you would say, I've pretty much given up on ever winning that battle. It is what it is. I think there have been too many partial victories followed by setbacks and so we just settle in our minds that this is just the way it is always going to be. I've tried to honestly share the fact that over the past 12 years, I have struggled with many things that I have preached to you about. 
times when I just want to give in to a spirit of passivity. Times when I get so discouraged, I wonder, what am I doing with my life? But I can honestly say this, and I can say it with 100% conviction. I never look to my God and assume that anything other than total victory is possible. Complete freedom. I believe that to the core of my being. And I don't care how many times I have to face the giants. I don't care how similar they look to other giants I have slain. I will not waver from the truth of God's word that he who begun a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. What about you? As we close, we all have giants in our lives that we must face. But all giants don't have six fingers on each hand. Your giant is maybe an area of your life that you just can't get control of. Your giant may be a relationship that went sour and left you with brokenness. Your giant may be a horrible past that you are struggling to overcome. Regardless of what your giant is, it seems at times like an obstacle. It's an obstacle that you will never get past. But we learned this morning that we can. And notice also in verse 22, it says, These giants fell by the hand of David and the hands of his servants. But if you read that, David didn't actually physically kill any of those giants. In fact, in verse 17, it would seem that David would have been killed had not one of the giants, by one of the giants, had he not received help from Abishai. Well, what does that say to us this morning? It says to me that there is also credit in our attempted service. As Christians, we are not only rewarded for our victories, but we are given credit for just being faithful in the fight. It's impossible for me to overstress the importance of just being faithful with whatever God puts in front of you, whether that's being a housewife, a boss, a garbage collector, or even a pastor. That is why on that day we stand before him, the words that we will carry into eternity will be, well done, you good and faithful servant. And Father, I don't know the giants that are represented in this room this morning, but I know that we all have them. And I pray, Father,